One time when I was riding with a uh, Tukwila police officer, we were called to take a report on a stolen car at a car dealership. A customer had left their keys in the car so the mechanic could look at their car while they were out doing a test drive, and somebody had stolen their car while they were out doing the test drive. <laughs> we thought maybe it was an inside job, but I never did hear the end of that. <laughs> but while the police officer was uh, doing his the thing with the report and all that, I was just wandering around the showroom, and uh, at, I wasn't wearing a uniform at that time, so I was just dressed sort of casually, kind of business casual, if you will. So I'm just walking around looking at the cars and and one of the salesmen kind of sidled over to me and he says, are you undercover? <laughs> I couldn't help myself, so I said, yes, yes I am, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and he kind of kept talking and, <clears throat> and so I, I, couldn't, I couldn't lie for long, so I said, well, I'm a chaplain. And he said, what's a chaplain? And what I wanted to say was, well, I'm an undercover preacher. <laughs> but if I tell you that, then I'd have to kill you, wouldn't I? <laughs> the truth is, <laughs> I am undercover all the time. I actually work for the CIA. I'm not a pastor. No. No, this plain vanilla, post-middle age, husband of 32 years with bald head and grandchildren who dresses conservatively, especially on Christmas is really a wild-eyed fanatic, a radical. Because I believe that the path of life you need to walk on is absolutely revolutionary. And I'm going to call that path of life today the Christmas way, the Christmas way of life. What's revolutionary about the Christmas way of life? Well, I would submit to you, first of all, the Christmas way is revolutionary because it's based on a divine Christ. Look with me at Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Verse 18. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying... Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people for his sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. God with us. There are many views of Christ today which are widely acceptable. The Muslims are happy to speak about Christ as a prophet, even a prophet which should be honored, but obviously in their mind inferior to the prophet Allah, or excuse me, the prophet Muhammad, which is the ultimate prophet of God, Allah, as they call him. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was Jehovah's first creation. 
that Jehovah created everything else by means of him, and that the initial unassisted act of creation uniquely identifies Jesus as God's only begotten son, quote-unquote. Jesus served as a ransom sacrifice to pay for the sins of humankind. They believe that Jesus died on a single upright torture stake rather than the traditional cross. They believe that references in the Bible to the archangel Michael and Apollyon or Abaddon and the Word all refer to Jesus. Do you understand what it means when they say the word Apollyon and Jesus are the same? The word Apollyon means destroyer. How does that work? One of the more unique views of Christ that I came across in my study was by a guy named John Arthur Thomas Robinson, who was a New Testament scholar, and we'll put that in quotes. I mean, he was a scholar because he wrote scholarly books. Because once you see what he believes, you'll, you'll know that he didn't know his Bible that well. He was an Anglican bishop. If you don't know the word Anglican, that's in our country that's called Episcopalian, an Episcopal priest. He was a bishop there. He died in 1983. Here's what he said. Here's what he said about the person of Christ. In other words, the formula that we presuppose is not one of a superhuman person with two natures, divine and human, but of one human person of whom we must use two languages, man language and God language. Jesus is holy and completely a man, but a man who speaks true, not simply of humanity, but of God. He is not a man, plus a man fitted, as it were, with a second engine, which would mean that he was not a man in any genuine sense. He is a man who in all that he says and does as a man is the personal representative of God. He stands in God's place. He is God to us and for us. And you know, if you went out today and talked this way among the community, they'd go, oh, okay, okay, okay. I don't believe any of it for a minute. I believe that Jesus Christ was and is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And that's what makes me a revolutionary and a radical. Because I'm not willing to say Jesus is just whoever you think he was or is. This verse that we quote around the Christmas story bears it out. You, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of the towns of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose goings forth are from of old. Do you understand what this prophecy is saying? Several hundred years before Christ, it says there's going to be in the future someone born in Bethlehem whose goings forth are from of old. This is not talking about somebody who began his existence on A.D. 0. It's talking about somebody whose existence always was, but he came into the world taking a human body, joining together the divine and the human in a way that we can't fully grasp. And I suspect that that's part of the reason why people struggle so much to accept the simple truth of God's word. In speaking of Christ, the Apostle Paul clearly declares things that are only true of God. For by Him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities, all things were created through Him and for Him. 
And he is before all things, and in him all things literally hold together. Christ was indeed divine. He was God who took on flesh. And I would submit to you here that the really revolutionary thing is not just with Christ, but the entire concept of God. God is revolutionary because he he exists outside the box of human imagination. Human imagination can create and understand the idea that the stuff of this universe has always existed just in different forms. It began swirling as a mass of hot gas, it exploded into pieces, and it evolved into the world we live in today. And somehow human imagination can imagine that. But human imagination cannot conceive of a God so powerful that he would speak our world into existence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Then God said, let there be light, and it happened. Then God said, let there be a firmament or the heavens, and it happened. Then God said, let the waters be gathered together and let there be dry land, and it happened. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. Then God said, let us make man in our image. And this one really blows mankind into a tailspin because it says, let us Make mankind in our image, plural. Not only a creator God, but one who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God absolutely swims upstream when he claims that he is the triune creator and sustainer of all things. Now, how revolutionary is this? Try to teach it in public school. Absolutely, you would be absolutely marginalized and, and, and removed because it's too radical. You can bring in some of our Native American brothers and have them talk about their culture, but don't you talk about that Jesus Christ, the Son of God. How radical is this? Write it in a letter to the editor and see what the responses are. Write an article and submit it to a scientific journal. See if it gets published. Try to pray in a public place and tell them ahead of time, I intend to say, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, Amen. In some of my chaplaincy training, I took a class on religious diversity. Now, this is at a meeting where every single person there has declared themselves to be religious. Okay, In other words, we're all chaplains, uh, all different faiths, majority Christian. And this is a class on religious diversity. And you know what I learned? I learned that I can say anything except this. In fact, what I really learned is I really shouldn't talk about religion at all. What I really should talk about is a psychological approach to mankind. I raised my hand. (laughs) I couldn't help it after a while. And I said, you know what what seems like religious diversity to me? You know, and I could look over and I could tell from the clothing we had at least one Jewish person and at least one Arabic person or or Muslim person there. And I just said, I would love to hear what the, what the Muslim brother has to say, what his religion has to say about dealing with the stresses of the emergency services. 
And I would love to hear what the Jewish brother has to say. And I would love to hear what everybody has to say. I think that's religious diversity. But you know why that'll never happen? Because at some point, the Christian brother is going to get up and talk. And that's too radical. That is too radical. The Christmas way is revolutionary because it's based on a divine Christ. Make, make no mistake, if you're going to believe in Christmas and if you're going to follow God's Christmas way of life, you have to believe in a divine Christ. Secondly, the Christmas way is revolutionary because it's based in a virgin-born Christ. Again, we come back to Matthew 1. <clears throat> we could also look at Luke chapter 1 and 2. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, verse 18, after his mother was engaged to Joseph, before before they came together physically, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Look at how God emphasizes this. Verse 20, the angel says to Joseph, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. In Luke's account, Mary herself responds to the angelic announcement before she's actually with child. The angel says, You're going to be with child of the Holy Spirit. And she goes, Hey, wait a minute. I've never been with a man. All she can think of is, If I'm going to be pregnant, there has to be a man involved. And the angel says, no, not going to be a man involved this time. The Holy Spirit is going to miraculously create the human body within you. You see, if the concept of God isn't big enough to mess with most people's heads, the whole idea of a virgin birth seals the deal. They can only imagine a God who conforms to what they know of the world, and a virgin birth isn't part of that. But I'm a radical. I believe that God said Christ would be born of a virgin, and I believe he was born of a virgin because the virgin birth is critical to his mission in the world, which he could not accomplish if he was born of human parents. Here's what his mission in the world was, Hebrews 9. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the, the external cleansing, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, how much more shall it cleanse your conscience, your inner man, from the dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the sins under the first covenant that those who may be called, who are called, may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. The reason for the, reason for the virgin birth is summed up by this passage and put well in a quote from Robert Leitner. The virgin birth settles the question of whether we have a natural or supernatural Christ. By means of the virgin birth, God the Father united the divine nature with the human nature in one perfect, sinless, divine person. Because of this, Christ is qualified to be the sin bearer. Christ is able to be our Savior because he was divine 
and human. He had to be divine to be sinless. He had to be human to have blood to shed. There's only one way he could be the Savior, and that was to be virgin-born. The Christmas way is also revolutionary because it's based in a saving Christ. Matthew 1.21 She will bring forth a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus comes from the Old Testament word, or Old Testament name Joshua. Literally, God will save. Last week, there were three climbers, or a couple of weeks ago, who went out on Mount Hood, and uh, supposedly they were experienced, and, uh, and yet they got out, and there was a snowstorm, as there often is in Mount Hood, and uh, one of them apparently got hurt, another one went to walk out for help, and that one was found dead, and so they knew the other two were in trouble as well. Would you think about something really simple with me? Those two men and a woman, those three folk, needed saving. Why? Was it because they were inexperienced? No, they were experienced. Was it because they were unprepared? Uh, No. They needed saving because they couldn't save themselves. The one fellow thought, I know, what, I know what we need to do. I'll walk out and get help. And he died in the process. Now, did they know they couldn't save themselves? I don't know. But they couldn't. They couldn't save themselves. They tried to save themselves, but it didn't work. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. I want to think about this, this need for being saved. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. There's another revolutionary thing here. I'm not making it one of my points, but the revolutionary thing is that God puts demands on mankind. Look at Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created mankind, and he gave them positive work to do. He didn't, they weren't just supposed to sit in the garden and twiddle their thumbs and make goo-goo eyes at each other. He said, there's work for you to do. Now look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. That was the work, to tend and keep the garden. And the Lord God commanded the man, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, surely you shall die. God said, I'm going to put you in a perfect environment and I'm going to expect you to obey this command, which is don't eat from this tree. Was there something magical about the tree? No, there was not. There was something life-changing about obedience or disobedience. Turn to Genesis chapter 6. You know the story. Adam ate first and gave it to her husband. Let's look at the impact of the story in verse 6 of chapter 3. If I said chapter 6, I'm wrong there. Chapter 3, verse 6. Sorry. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid them from the, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and he said, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I command you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you're cursed more than all the cattle. And drop down to verse 17. And then he said to Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, you shall, and said you shall not eat it, cursed is the ground for your sake. And look down now to verse 22. Verse 20. And for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. When Adam and Eve stepped over God's fence of obedience, they became aware of their own nakedness. Now, what were they wearing before that? I don't know. Were they blind to their nakedness? Were they wearing a covering of light? Did they see their nakedness and not think there was anything wrong? Something like that, yes. Because once they rebelled against God, they looked and went, Oh, this isn't right. And they thought, I can't face God this way. And so they went and hid amongst the trees. Now, did God know where they were? Of course he did. When God went, Adam, what was he doing? He was having a a teachable moment with Adam. He was saying, Adam, what's going on here? And he wanted to work through this process with Adam. I want you to focus on on this simple fact. When Adam and Eve stepped over the fence of obedience, they became aware of their nakedness, and their sin gave birth to fear, lying, self-deception, and blaming. There's a lot of that talk today. We look at mankind who has all kinds of difficulties, and what's what's the take? The take is, oh, they're sick. The technical term that some of my police friends used to use was this, that's one sick puppy. Because mankind looks at people that are doing things that we would say are crazy, they don't make sense for a normal person, and they go, they must be sick. Oh, they're underprivileged. They had a poor upbringing. Oh, they're so ignorant. Oh, they have such a self-esteem problem. Oh, boy, they've been victimized. Oh, they're genetically deficient. And you know what this is by mankind? It's fig leaves. It's mankind picking up something to cover himself with. Because he knows he's naked. He's naked. 
He knows he doesn't have what he needs. He knows that he's not ready to, to relate to God. He knows his life isn't working. He knows there's problems. And so he heaps on some stuff, some fig leaves. When you put fig leaves over top of sin, it's like painting on top of a piece of sheetrock that's got stains. It covers it right over for just a little while. And then pretty soon, the stain just eats right through that surface. And of course, what you have to do is slap some more paint on. That's what our world does today with sin. You can watch TV. Uh, Dr. Phil will tell you what to do. And frankly, his advice is, is quite good, but powerless. Stop treating your husband like that. Stop treating your wife like that. Stop treating yourself like that. It's all many, many, many good things, but powerless. Because mankind tries to do it themselves, and it's fig leaves. Oprah says, believe in yourself. Dr. Robert Schuller says, think positively. Dream big. If you can dream it, you can do it. No, not really. The religions of the world say, do more good than bad, and you'll be okay. There's all kinds of ways to put fig leaves on your nakedness, but ultimately you're naked. You're naked in your sin. And so what does God say? What did Adam do? What did God do for Adam and Eve? See, they covered themselves up with something of their own creation. God went over and took an animal and killed the animal and took the skin and put it on them. God said, somebody has to die to pay for your sin. Now, God didn't tell them the whole truth. The whole truth is developed throughout all of God's word. But eventually we learn this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the, the payment, the redemption that is in Christ, whom God set forth as a way to satisfy his wrath against sin. Remember he said to Adam and Eve, if you do this, you will die. That's God's demand. And he says, Jesus Christ satisfied that demand. How? By his blood. The animal skin was a picture of this blood that was to come through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, in his patience, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, that is, before Christ died, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I believe that Christ came to be our Savior. He was the God-man who died for us. And that's what makes me the most radical of all, because I believe he is the only Savior. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The cure for our sin-struck human lives is Christ alone. Christ alone. Faith in Christ brings that sacrifice to us. But that also brings us to, the, to, to perhaps the most radical of my beliefs, which is this. The Christmas way is revolutionary because Christ must come into your life as Savior and King. As Savior and King. Look at Matthew chapter 2. Turn back to Matthew with me. Matthew 2. We looked at this episode a couple of weeks ago with the wise men in Herod. Let's look at it again. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, 
Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Conventional wisdom, wisdom in the world out there, sees beauty in the life of Christ. They see him righting many wrongs socially. They see him calling for a better quality of life and living than most people have. They call, they call him a good man and say we should follow his example. And yet he was born to be a king. Is that just a king over the physical, literal kingdom? Or is that a spiritual king and a physical king? I think this passage here answers the question. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came to running and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, do not defraud, or honor your father and mother. And the man answered and said, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross and follow me. Now, was Jesus saying that you have to take a vow of poverty to get saved? No. Later in this passage, what he makes really clear is this. Some people trust in something other than Christ. This fellow was trusting in his money. And so he said, you need to let go of whatever you're trusting in and take up the cross. The cross being a symbol of death. You have to die in order to follow me. Christ doesn't come in to save your life so you can live your life as you please. If God was in that business, he would have just let Adam and Eve do whatever they wanted. He comes to us so that we can finally know the rich life that he has planned. Do you see this? When Jesus put this hard statement out, this hard expectation, it was because he loved the man. The rich life that people are craving is the Christmas way. But it only comes through believing in these radical teachings. It only comes through believing that there is a divine Christ, a virgin-born Christ, a saving Christ, and a ruling Christ. Last week I told you about my bad tooth and ambiguous diagnosis. By Monday morning the pain was getting so bad I couldn't even work out. I couldn't breathe heavy because the air coming in my mouth just set the pain off. The pain was going exponentially higher. And I called up the specialist and said, I have to get some help. And uh, they got me in. They got a diagnosis. They gave me a root canal. And by Tuesday morning, I was going, ah. Now, there is an alternative. I could have just taken a whole bunch of pain medication. I got a bunch of Vicodin at home. Because every time we have a little surgery or something, you know, I take about two of those things. In fact, they told me, you take some Vicodin, you know. Now, I could have done that, and I wouldn't have felt anything, right? I could have put 
fig leaves on my pain. But the solution, the solution is to get rid of the, the problem and replace it with something good. Are you tired of your fig leaves yet? Are you still just getting by or are you ready to try God's Christmas way? I want to encourage you today that the way of God is revolutionary. And the, 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 the revolution, the hardest battle in the revolution will be with you, not with other people. But God's way is a blessed way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us the path to the life that we, that we so much desire, the life of joy and peace and purpose. But it's a radical path. And I pray that you would help us, help us to walk on that path. Help us to, to believe in the Christ that you sent at Christmas time nearly 2,000 years ago. I pray in his name. Amen.